Hope makes all the difference. Hope makes all the difference. Researchers a few years back tried to find um, what the effect is of hope on people that are undergoing hard times. So here's what they did. They took two groups of rats. They put each of the rats in pools of water. Periodically, they took one group of rats, lifted them up out of the water, and put them back down. They left this group of rats just to swim. The group of rats that were periodically lifted up out of the water and just put back down swam for over 24 hours. The group of rats that weren't picked up drowned within an hour. What was the difference? Hope. Even unthinking rats came to the conclusion, if I just hold on a little bit longer, somebody's going to come and get me. Hope makes all the difference. And you know this to be true. We spend all of our lives searching for hope, trying to find it. Yeah, I remember 10 years ago, a group of us moved to Atlanta to uh, help start a church downtown, and um, we moved right at the height of the financial crisis that hit. So people would come, and they couldn't find jobs. They put in 80, 90 job applications before they got their first call back. After they got their call back, it was still like Tommy from Martin. They still didn't have a job. But do you know what they had? Hope. We spend our lives chasing hope from job interviews to asking folks out on dates to those of us that are trying to have kids, uh, fertility plans each month, trying to find a better house or trying to find a better spouse or daydreams, your daydreams, our hopes. I know that you know hope makes all the difference because your frustrations in life aren't just because you've run into hard times. Your frustrations in life come from the fact that you feel like you can't find hope. Maybe your job let you go and there's no other job that's getting ready to call you back. Relationships have let you down. Marriages have let you down. Spouses have let you down. The government has let you down. You go online and you feel like it used to be that complete strangers had a decency about them. And now it's even hard to find that, that you look around and it just feels like things that are torn down can't be rebuilt. What causes despair is not that people run into hard times. Everybody runs into hard times. What causes despair is not that people run into hard times. It's that they run out of hope. Hope makes all the difference. And it's so hard to come by, right? It seems that the harder you look for it, uh, the quicker it runs out on you. So much so to the point that there may be some of us in here that have resigned hoping. We just give up hope that people come to us with good news about something that we've hoped for and things have gotten so bad that we say, don't even tell me that. Don't tell me what 
you're going to do. Don't tell me how things will change because that'll make me get my hopes up. And I've gotten my hopes up in the past and my hopes have let me down and I'm in despair because I don't think that my marriage can be rebuilt. I don't think that my friend's marriage can be rebuilt. I don't think that things can change for me. If you're feeling low this morning or you know somebody that's feeling low and hopeless, empty because they've searched for hope, you search for hope and you just can't find it in the things that you look for, I've got nothing but good news for you. Here's the good news that I have for you from this text. You ready? You don't have to find hope. Because in Jesus, hope has already found you. If you're here this morning, you do not have to find, you don't have to search for it. Your search is over, it's done, it's completed. Hope has found you right there in that pew, in that marriage, in that job, in the neighborhood that you live in, in that family. Hope has found you. That's what this text is all about. The first section of Matthew, we spent these past five weeks trying, not just trying to introduce you to Jesus, but what Matthew's trying to do over and over again, he's going to use this word fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. Seven times in the first four chapters, he's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of what the Old Testament has promised, not just so that you could know Jesus met some prediction, it's because the people that were reading the Old Testament were people that looked at their day, were hopeless, and they were trying to find hope, and what Matthew's trying to say is, no, no, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope. He's trying to bring the hope of the world to your front doorstep, and so what we see here is Jesus is God, but he's God in the flesh. And what that means is Jesus experiences life as a human. Look here at verse 12. Verse 12 starts off and says this. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. Like we talked about last week, um, this is a part of a story. So what's most important is what takes place Prior to this, for those of y'all that don't know, John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin who came before him preaching the same thing that he did. Jesus just gets finished doing what no man has ever done, and that's standing toe-to-toe with Satan, being tempted to abandon God, being promised all the riches and good things in the world, and successfully turning him down disadvantage. Jesus has just gotten a major win. And here's what I mean. He experiences life as a human. Y'all know what this is like, right? To get this big win only to come home and to get more bad news. To experience victory only to come back in your life and to feel like, dang, the other shoe dropped. Jesus experiences this great win, and he gets word, like, hey, Jesus, uh, John just got hemmed up. John's getting locked up for preaching the same stuff that you're going to preach. So if you're going to be obedient to God in the way that he is, I want you to know that your fate's going to be just like his. So what it does is it tells us that he 
falls back. He gets this win, but then he withdraws. He's reminded that faithfulness to God is costly. And we see something unique. Jesus, who just passed the test that nobody else could pass, who is primed to enter into the spotlight, he could go into the center of this religious city and start to flex and show all of his power to the influential, and he doesn't. He takes a step back and he goes to a place called Galilee. Because what we see is that Jesus' mission, at least at this point, is not to ascend to the ranks of the influential and the elite. His mission at this point is to descend, to take a step back, and to go to people that are hopeless. People that are downcast, people that are distraught, people that are on the outside, people that have searched for hope and can't find it. Jesus' mission is to go to them and help them see, y'all don't have to look for hope. Hope has found you. I think in this text we see it in at least three ways. The very first way that we know that hope has found us is that this hope um, and God's hope always comes to the most unlikely places. Unlikely places. A few years ago, Amazon was trying to look for a city to set up a new headquarters. And so what took place was almost every city in the United States saw them as the savior of their economy. So everybody was trying to get Amazon to come to their town. Well, almost everybody. Do you know who wasn't trying to get them to come to their town? Savannah, Georgia. Macon, Georgia. Dallas, Georgia. Do you know why? Because if you're going to get the savior of an economy to come to your city, you've got to have something to offer. So the small cities, the depressed cities, the cities that didn't have much said, we're an unlikely place. There's no way somebody like Amazon comes here. The reason why this text may not make sense to us is because we don't know just how much of an unlikely place that is. Zebulun and Naphtali were unlikely places. The Olympics weren't going to choose them as their next site. The Super Bowl was not going to come there. Amazon was not going to come there. If you lived there, you probably couldn't even get a pizza delivered to where you were. Zebulun and Naphtali was an unlikely place. You start here in verse 12 and 13 says this. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, What you read there is a bunch of geography, and you say, why does Matthew take so much time to give us the geography? And I want you to know, he's he's, he's not just trying to meet some word count. There's something intentional and specific that he's trying to get here. So if you go back into your Bibles, what you find out and see is that Zebulun and Naphtali were tribes of Israel. After the exodus took place, Moses set them free, they go, and they cross the Red Sea. Joshua then comes in, takes the helm, and leads this nation 
across the Jordan and they go into this land and their goal is to conquer this land, to take this land for themselves. And what you find is that Zebulun and Naphtali compromise. So what God says is there are going to be people here that are going to lead you astray. So I need you to to remove all of it. But what they do is they do what we do. Sometimes God tells us, there's people that you need to put out of your life. There's folks that you need to remove. And we spend our time trying to domesticate what God has told us to remove. And we get bitten. A few years ago, CNN put out this documentary called Blackfish, right? Y'all remember that? Blackfish was all about the travesties that took place at SeaWorld when they thought they could take killer whales and make them friendly, right? So it turned out that Shamu was really like a monster. He had a body count, right? And so they, what brings up there is they're like, yo, y'all are trying to domesticate something that can't be domesticated. What God's saying is with your little pet sins and things like that, y'all are trying to domesticate something that's meant to kill you. You can't. Zebulun and Naphtali did it, and they lived in compromise. So then what takes place is they have a legacy of compromise. Then when they finally get the punishment for their sins, the Assyrian Empire comes in, conquers them. So they're the first group to get destroyed. They're the first ones to get hit. They don't get rebuilt. This land becomes a sign of military invasion, conquest. It's pagan infested. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles because it's this mixed group. It's this place that's an unlikely place. And I want you to see this. The savior of the world doesn't stumble into the religious capital he goes there. And he doesn't just rent there. He doesn't just sign a lease there. That's his home base. Jesus, he's not coerced. He goes there by choice. And then you and I taking a step back and examining the way that he chooses places, it tells us something about his nature and who he is. We tend to think of hope as a location. We tend to think of hope as someplace other than where we are right now. That's why when you sit and daydream, you're not daydreaming about being in a pew right now. You're daydreaming about being someplace else. Because you think that whatever's wrong with your world can be solved primarily by a change in location. And so you go on this search trying to find hope. But let me tell you, you don't have to find hope. Hope has found you. Hope is not a destination. It is something that God is determined to deliver to your current location right now. We think of hope as a place that we have to go to. God looks at hope as something that he wants to give. 
We look at the problems, the obstacles, the hindrances, all of those things in our lives as a reason why we should escape and need to get out. God looks at all of those things, not as obstacles, but as opportunities for him to flex, to show his power, to show how strong he is, to show that there's nothing that's absolutely hopeless. God has never met a situation, a circumstance, a location that's hopeless. And let me tell you, yours, whatever it is, is not the first one. Hope travels. Jesus is moving. Matthew is talking about the geography to set up a paradigm that the hope of the gospel comes to the most unlikely places. So what that means is instead of you spending all your time praying for deliverance from something, you should pray asking God to deliver hope to you right where you are right now. Let me throw in a little caveat. Sometimes... There are locations that are incredibly harmful. So if you are in a relationship or a marriage where there is physical, verbal, and emotional abuse, this is not saying just stay there and do nothing. Sometimes there are times where we have to remove ourselves. But I do think that for a majority of us that don't find ourselves in those life-threatening circumstances, we have to remember that you don't have to find hope elsewhere. Hope has found you. To be quite honest, um, you're here in this building right now because Richard and Amanda and their families, Erica and Lawrence Brown, and their families, years ago, knew this truth about Jesus. And as Christians wanted to live their lives in light of that truth, so when they had the opportunity to move and to go someplace, they said, not where can I go to gain hope, but where can we go to give it? Where can we go to plant roots in a place And do our best to set up shop like Jesus said, set up shop. What I'm not saying is that it's a mandate and the only way to be a Christian is to move into disenfranchised communities. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that it's a very good thing to do. That if you have means, if you have the ability to choose where you live and where you stay, you're never at a loss when you choose like Jesus chooses. And that's such a tangible way, not just to come into a place like this and tell folks that you don't have to find hope, hope has found you, but to illustrate, show, and embody it. That's why we want to plant roots here. Because you drive around the West End and you see things. We just went out to dinner last night at Boxcar right across from my house. And you just see a community of folks. And the resurgence and stuff is great. But you're just in this place and you say, wait a minute. This was not made to transfer hope to the people that are here that may find themselves hopeless. This was built for people that are mobile and can drive anywhere to find hope. And now there's just one other place. 
I pray that God would stir some of our hearts to move like Christ moved. You don't have to find hope. Hope finds you. Hope comes to the most unlikely places. And it doesn't just come to unlikely places. Hope comes to unlikely people. Um, when you find somebody that makes a request for help, one of the most instinctive things that you do, that I do, that banks do, uh, is we look for their credit worthiness. We look for their reputation. Do they have a reputation where if I help them, it will be good for both them and me? Then if you're really kind, you'll say, wait, wait, all right. I don't even need a reputation. I just need to make sure that as I try to give help that they're not rude. What takes place here is we see Jesus doesn't just come to the most unlikely places. He comes to unlikely people. Look here at verse 14. It says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali. Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. What this does is he quotes a passage that comes from the book of Isaiah. Right? We read it as we sang. The passage promises that God's chosen son is going to come to the most unlikely place. And it's here that this prince of peace, this wonderful counselor, will be born. But when the New Testament writers quote what's in the Old Testament, they don't quote like we think, right? So it's not just like he quoted verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. Your Old Testament was not written broken up by chapter and verses. It was just a long scroll. So Isaiah was a book. So when they quote a section out of the book, they want to bring the whole book to mind. Here's the context of that promise. It comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. It should be here on the screen. Um, And it says this. Look. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. When this talks about the promise that comes to the people that live in darkness, what it's saying is there's this group of folks, listen, who don't just visit darkness. The way that you and I go to a bad movie, right, and just say, well, I paid for it. I'm going to sit through and endure, but I know that I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and find peace. What this is saying is that there's certain folks that live, and what I want you to hear this is this, everybody suffers, but everybody doesn't suffer in the same way. There are certain people, when suffering is mentioned, they say, this is not just some place I go to, this is my permanent address. And I've just lived with this trauma, with abuse, with being a victim. I've 
I just lived in it. And I know that we all have hard lives, but there are certain folks whose lives are just harder than other people's lives. And as a result of this darkness that some folks live in, at best there's people that are spiritual and have a deep connection with God, and they say, God, it's hard for me to trust you because I know that somehow you let this take place. And then there are people that would say they used to be religious, they used to be spiritual until they embraced the truth that God had allowed the worst to take place. And that's the thing that's caused them to look at God and say, I don't know how a loving God can give everybody else the lots that they have in life, and I've got to sit with this one. Maybe a few of y'all in here that are just wrestling with that deep trauma. And you find yourself here in a place where you say, John, I've, I've cursed God. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't even know how I found my way in here. And I want to let you know you didn't find your way in here. God's directed you to come here. You don't have to look for hope. Your search is over. Hope has found you. Look, it's to these folks that verse 16 says this. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. Notice how all the verbs when it talks about this light are passive. It's not like these people that are in deep darkness found their way to God. It says they have seen a great light, which means that this light shone irregardless of anything that they've done. This light has dawned. It came to them. Jesus doesn't just choose to come to an unlikely place. He chooses to surround himself with unlikely people. And that's what this whole story is trying to get at so far. The genealogy in the first chapter is filled with people whose lives are mired in scandal. Magi in verse uh, chapter up, up, up to two. Outsiders who God speaks to them, not even in a religious way, but through their superstition, God draws them in. Chapter 3, John the Baptist goes out into the wilderness, and outsiders come in. God is concerned with the outsiders. Jesus is among them. By choice, he chooses his neighbors. Could it be that your feelings of inadequacy or rejection by God or unworthiness or just questions about his love for you come because you've spent more time thinking that God chooses the way that you choose and not reading the text and see God doesn't choose the, the way that you choose. He always comes and surrounds himself with un likely people. Think about it. Where were you? For those of you that are Christians in here, where were you when God found you? Whose bed were you in when God found you? What were you chasing when God found you? What were you smoking when God found you? 
Who was getting the brunt of your wrath and anger when God found you? I don't know all of your stories, but I'm pretty confident that you were in what many of us would deem a hopeless place. And do you know what? God found you. I think we give up too easily on ourselves and other people because we forget the hopeless conditions that God has come in to find us. Listen, you do not have to read far in your Bibles before this truth jumps off of the page. If you've ever started a yearly Bible reading plan and have made it through the first three verses, do you know what you should get? That God can go into absolute darkness and cause light to shine there. And listen, that is the same storyline that is repeated throughout the whole thing. The Bible gives away the tension, the climax, the resolution before the story even starts so that when you run into hard times, you don't run out of hope. What that does for those of us that are Christians is it removes two words from our vocabulary. And do you know what those two words are? That's hopeless. He's hopeless. She's hopeless. Put any noun or pronoun in front of that. And we just can't say that because it's false. Hope comes to unlikely people in unlikely places. It met me at gunpoint on a dirt road in Nigeria. It met one of you in this church in a library, running away from the shame that came as a result of failure. It met a family member of mine on drugs, running from his life uh, or for his life. It met him in a ditch as he found himself in the parking lot of a church and looked up at one of those corny church signs that are put on the uh, joint out front. If you feel like you're hopeless or living in darkness, I want you to know that there is no such thing. And here's what I want you to do. Don't just think about it. Remember it. Record it. Write it down. Listen, don't just record it. Repeat it. Recite it out loud. Do you know what that does? One of the great gifts that God gives us to move on into the future is our pasts. So there's sometimes that we can find ourselves in a place that we feel like is absolutely hopeless, and we look at our past and say, I've been there before, and I know that God can bring hope to an unlikely person in an unlikely place. But do you know what? There's sometimes where you find yourself at a new level of hopelessness. And you can look at your past and say, I think that God can, but I don't have an example of where he's done that. Do you know the tool that God gives us then? The ability to live vicariously through somebody else. 
It's other people being honest about their stories, their pain, and their hopelessness that we can look back and say, I haven't been in a place like that, but I know that Jackie has. I haven't been in a place like that, but I know that Keith has. I haven't been in a place like that, but I know that Dominic has, and I've seen how God has been good to him. Your hopelessness, your pain, your frustration, do not be selfish with it. It is not about you, and it's not for you. It's for somebody else. It's yet one more opportunity for God to show his goodness in real life to meet unlikely people in unlikely places and bring hope. And what we see here, I appreciate that. What we see here. Was that hope comes if in Jesus it really comes to unlikely people in unlikely places. What that means is that it's not earned at all. It's a gift, completely by grace. Do you feel disqualified from the hope that's found in Jesus? If you do, that, that's all the qualification that you need. That is the only prerequisite. Here's the best part of this news. We know that we didn't have to find hope, that hope found us, not just because there's this, it comes to an unlikely place or it comes to unlikely people, but look here at the end. It's seen in this unexpected proclamation of peace. Verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, hear this, repent because the kingdom of God has come near. Here's a few things. It says that Jesus began to preach as it brings that up. It's not just about what he said, but how he said it. Preaching is heralding, announcing, it's loud. It's so that everybody that hears it can respond. And here's the great thing. As Jesus is preaching this message, he's not preaching it in Jerusalem in the religious capital. He's preaching it on the outskirts to both Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders, because he wants everybody to hear it. Repentance is an invitation to be a part of God's kingdom. And it's not just an invitation, but to preach something, it's to command it. Hear this. Jesus is not suggesting that people turn to him. He is commanding that people worship him. And this command comes with a guarantee. As we're reminded of the Old Testament like Matthew wants us to be, what we see is Jesus is not just the new Moses. All right, here's what you see. Moses destroys the enemies of God and leads his people out of bondage. Moses does not lead them into the promised land. There's another guy that comes on. His name is Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus. All of it is translated the same thing. God is salvation. So what Joshua does 
is he doesn't lead them across the Red Sea out of bondage. He leads them across the Jordan, hear this, into the territory of God's enemies. And once again, God's enemies are destroyed so that God's chosen people can inherit the land. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus sets up this base across the Jordan. He goes into enemy territories, and I want you to hear this. There are two ways to destroy your enemies. One is with a closed fist to pound them into the ground. The other is with open arms to bring them close by. Jesus destroys his enemies by offering an invitation into friendship. You talk about open arms. And when Jesus was on the cross, both of his arms were stretched wide open to welcome his enemies to come and embrace him. And you saw it on the cross. As people are nailing his hands to the cross so that he can't close them. They're nailing his hands to the cross, proving to be enemies. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, I know these are my enemies, and I am determined to lead my people into the promised land, but I want to transform them into friends. I don't want to just pound them into the ground. So here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to take your justice on the cross so that they can have your love. So as Jesus is is proclaiming this, we see that repentance is this. It's tied to an invitation into a kingdom. And that's huge because this, look, a kingdom is about submitting to somebody or a good king that's going to control your life. Jesus is not just about rule breaking. He's not just trying to provide you and I forgiveness, although he does it. What he's really trying to provide all of us is freedom. Freedom from searching for hope in places that it's never going to be found. David Foster Wallace at a graduation put it like this. If you're searching for hope in power, in control, you're always going to feel weak, afraid, and vulnerable, ever needing more. So that search for power and hope is going to make you obsessive, It's going to make you envious of people that have it that you don't. It's going to drive you to despair. And it's going to lead you to cynicism. Like Crawford Ritz says, cynicism is just institutionalized despair. You search for power in your intellect and how smart you are. And you're always going to feel dumb. You're going to feel like a fraud, afraid of being found out one day. If you search for hope in beauty, you're always going to feel ugly. And even when you feel like you're at the top of your game, you're going to hit 35 one day. And after that, things are going to sag in places that you wouldn't thought that they would. Things that you eat are going to cause you to grow in places that you didn't think that you would. And what he says is if you put your hope in beauty, 
you're always going to feel ugly and you'll die a million deaths before death finally plants you. If you put your hope in money, you're never going to feel like you have enough. And once you get what you hope for, it's going to drive you to worry and anxiety that you're going to keep what you hope. And if you get what you hope for and you lose it, it's going to drive you to a greater hopelessness than you had before you had anything. So what Jesus is trying to say in this invitation is this. I'm not just telling you to repent because sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend is wrong. I'm telling you to repent because that sin just shows that you're looking for hope in romance and you're never going to find it there. But what Jesus says is repent. Listen, turn from trying to find hope in all of those things. So if you're here and you say, John, I'm not a Christian, but I've looked for hope in all of these places, and I don't want to anymore. The invitation is, look, hope has found you right here in your pew. There is somebody that offers a much better freedom that when you come to him with your failures, will not cast you out, but will bring you in. And all you have to do is say, I no longer want to live my life in pursuit of those things. I want to live my life how you've guided and directed me. The beautiful thing about this here is that if you're a Christian and you say, John, I know better, but I don't do better. I've been sidetracked and I have been finding myself back in the very places that God delivered me from. What what should I do? Repent. It's the same thing. Christians, we live our whole lives saying, God, it's been exposed to me that I've put my hope and respect in the approval of people, and I've found that it's shallow and it's heartbreaking, and I'm filled with anxiety, and I see it start to creep up. God, would you help me not to put my hope in those things, but to put my hope back in you? And we see that we move towards freedom. I want you to hear this. Repentance is not bondage. It's a privilege. My daughter's getting to the place where she understands gum now, right? That all right, I put it in my mouth and I don't eat it, but I chew and chew and chew and chew and chew. Uh, well, there's times where when it's time for her to eat, to be nourished, full of food, I can start off with a suggestion, Ava, sweetheart, would you give me your gum so that you can take food? But what I found is she's just as stubborn as I am. So I have to get to a place where I don't suggest it. I command it. And I say, Ava, repent. (laughs) Dinner is ready, right? But I found she's just as stubborn as I am. So I found that sometimes I have to sit her down. I've got to take my finger, put it in her mouth, scoop that gum out, and it is uncomfortable. 
for me and for her. And she cries and cries and cries until she sits down with the plate of food that mom's made. And she eats. And she's full and she's nourished. And she says, well, she will say one day, repentance. Hear me. It's not as bad as I thought that it was. Repentance is not bondage. I am not missing out on anything. But I am paving the way and setting the scene for something special. I want you to hear this. Listen. Listen. Jesus accepts you just as you are. But everybody that truly comes to him says, I don't like me the way that I am. I need you to change me. He accepts you as you are, but he doesn't leave you there. This word repent is all-inclusive, and what it means is that everything about your life will change. Including the hopelessness that you feel. Hope makes all the difference. You don't have to find it. It's found you right here and right now. The only thing that you have to do, Christian or not yet one, is respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you are so good to us. You have been immensely good to us. You've provided a pathway into freedom, Father. I pray that today so many of us would take those first steps towards freedom, but I also pray those of us that are in here that have taken steps backwards would be reminded that you haven't called us to scale mountaintops to come to where you are, Father. You've come to where we are. You found us in the location, in the place that we are, and you've offered us hope. Help us to take hold of that hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.